my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? Testing one, two, three. How many times have we thought we were going to do an interview and didn't? I think it was just last year, though, because I was trying to get you at your room and you. And we had a miscommunication. Then I ended up talking to you in the lobby for about an hour before you left with the limo. That's right. Well, also I found that one of the more interesting talks I've had with anybody because we talked about your life and what you were doing, what your family was like, and some of your career and what it was like growing up. And I kind of thought that was interesting. Has has anybody ever talked to you about that on an interview? Or they just concentrate on on your work? Usually on the work. Sometimes things have come up. What I found interesting was I was wearing a Dodgers cap, and you said the Dodgers were my favorite team when you were growing up. Yep. And you grew up where? I grew up in Linden, New Jersey, 18 miles from New York City. Mm -hmm. So 20 miles from Brooklyn. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, you were either a Dodger giant or a Yankee fan in New Jersey. And I chose the Dodgers when they lost that World Series game with the pass ball. Go for the underdog. Yeah. So I was a Dodger fan. My cousin was a, Yan- a Giant fan. Another one was a Yankee fan. <laughs> you know, constant rivalry. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was quite a sports fan. I wrote sports for the school paper for four years in high school. Oh, yeah. Uh, all sports and I mean, the paper only came out every six weeks or so, you know. But I know. My school paper, that was my, what my school paper did. Yeah, I was on the school paper. And so that was my introduction to journalism, if you will. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Um, Why the Dodgers, though? I mean, besides... The underdog. The under, yeah, the underdog. You said something I was about excited Robinson, by, though. Well, yeah, and then one of my heroes growing up was Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. I so admired him because of the battles he had to fight as a black man breaking new ground. He was a four-letter man at UCLA. Right. And as the one who broke the color barrier in baseball, he put up with all kinds of garbage. Yes. And it was in his agreement with Branch Rickey of the Dodgers that he not respond. And so I had to admire not only his skills because... Watching Jackie Robinson um, going down third base and driving pitchers crazy was was fun. Yeah. I, I admired his skills, his base running skills, his smarts, and the tough row he had to hoe to make it. 
because yeah. he had to put up with all kinds of jibes from the field and from players and so forth. Yeah, it was even and, worse than just traveling with Negro Leagues and all the all the BS oh, yeah. with that. But he learned a lot of that in Negro Leagues, the stuff that they didn't do in the big leagues, and he kind of brought some of that up. He would dance off the base, and he'd say, he'd say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, and they'd go nuts. Well, I, I admired somebody who could fight against difficulty and, and come up a winner on the other side with dignity. Mm-hmm. Jackie was dignified. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't think of him in those terms, perhaps, but uh, I admired his skills and his way of being a human being. Yeah. Uh, he was an inspiration to me. And as a matter of fact, in college, I was in college from 51 to 56, and it was a time when desegregation was a big thing. I was a, in a fraternity and we fought on on two campuses uh, for desegregation in the fraternity houses, and there were some chapters where the home office said, "Thou shalt not desegregate." Yeah, you know, no blacks, no Jews, no Catholics, whatever your prejudice yeah. of the moment was. But yeah. uh, so I <clears throat> was involved in that battle too. Um, so go for the underdog, the Dodgers. <laughs> <laughs> And they finally won the World Series, and then they moved to Los Angeles, and I moved to Los Angeles. Oh, I didn't know you lived there for a while. Uh, I, in Southern California, I lived in Redondo Beach. Mm-hmm. And uh, were you, is this for work? Yeah. Uh, what else? Well, I, yeah. I moved three years here, three years there, three years someplace else. Right. And you, you think each one is going to be the job for the rest of your life, and uh, oh, three years, program's canceled, and... Bye. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I won't say spoiled, but my dad worked for the same company for 37 years. So I thought my first job, General Electric, I can work here forever. I'll retire when I'm 57. Yeah. Well, they have several branches and places, so even if I have to move around, I was gone in three years. The program was canceled. Yeah. And those were big programs. I was working on nuclear airplanes. Budget in 58 was $100 million. Which is a millions lot. now or yeah, something. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and it was fun. I mean, it's not fun moving your family around. Right. You know, but uh, I was, was after the challenges. Nuclear airplanes, nuclear rockets. The happiest moment of my life, I suppose, professionally was... When we had a successful test of the NRX A6 nuclear rocket reactor propulsion system for Westinghouse Astro Nuclear Lab. And we weren't sure how it was going to run, if it would run, or if it would fall apart. It was supposed to run. Yeah. But, uh, so it was great to listen to the test. And at five minutes, the uh, temperature was nominal, pressure was nominal, it was looking good. Ten minutes, 15, 20, we made the full 60. We had a limit. We could only store so much liquid hydrogen. Mm-hmm. This was a reactor that was less than eight feet in diameter. What year was this? That would have been 50, no, let's think, um, 68. Yeah. Yeah. Three. We ran one. 1,100 megawatts. Yep. Grand Coulee Dam's about 2,000 megawatts. So, um, 
And Aerojet ran one at 1,000 megawatts, and Los Alamos ran one at 4,000 megawatts. Exhaust temperature, 4,000 degrees, liquid hydrogen. Okay. And they cancel the program. Wouldn't it melt the nozzle? No. You had to cool the nozzles. There was oh, was, uh, is it the, just like right where you uh, circulate the... Uh, no, there was a reactor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how a nuclear rocket works. Well, you have <clears throat> graphite loaded with uranium, mm-hmm. tubes, a bunch of them, in an array with passages for the hydrogen to go by, and the hydrogen picks up the heat when this thing is fissioning. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> uh, the, the idea is... You could more than double your payload to Mars if you had a nuclear upper stage. So it was attractive, and we had three different programs going. They all were successful, and the program was canceled. <laughs> That's wow. the story of my life. Well, they had no mission, basically, because nobody had NASA had no guts. They didn't know. I, the worst meeting I ever attended, I was asked if I wanted to go because I was out at Aerojet, and my radiation shielding counterpart was there. Hey, Stan, you want to go to a meeting? Sure. Why? Well, it's to decide what are we going to do with the nuclear rocket engine. And the bottom line was they didn't know what they wanted to do with it. Well, we could use it for Earth orbit, lunar orbit. We could set up a colony on the moon. Public won't go for that. We could do this. We could do that. You want to get someplace. You need leadership. You need a goal. You need to have an Admiral Rickover who says, yeah. this is where we're going, guys. Yeah, exactly. You know, you don't want to go there. Get off the train. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So <clears throat> it was very frustrating. You have a great success. Three different groups had successes. And uh, well, there's no goal for a nuclear rocket. We're not going to Mars. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was frustration. Uh, the programs were all interesting that I worked on. And exciting and frustrating. Were they worried about um, accidents? Were the <laughs> well, they worried about that, but what did it kind of spread radiation over a wide area? Well, maybe well, that what wide, the hell? We test bomb. nuclear weapons, yes, yeah, exactly. and, and so uh, the Navy produces radiation in nuclear submarines, but they don't have accidents. They they were reliable, and they're all over the place, and. <clears throat> I think the biggest reason there's been peace, that is, we and the Russians haven't clobbered each other for the last 60, 70 years, is that we both have nuclear-powered submarines. And you can hide them. Nobody knows where you are. So you know that if the other, if the other guy attacks you, he knows you're going to retaliate because he can't take out your retaliatory capability because he doesn't know where it is. It's underwater. Yeah. yeah. So I think that mutually assured destruction... <laughs> Yes. Uh, I think it worked to keep the peace. Yeah. Everybody realized, uh, if we start this, uh, we can't stop them from attacking us. Right. So, it's, you know, it's a strange relationship, but uh, it worked, which is the proof of the pudding. Yeah. It worked when those when two large powers in, that uh, were fairly stable... Um, had I guess it was kind of a, it was almost a, an agreement. Detente. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was mutually assured detente. <laughs> well, Even during it, the Cold War, it, it's better than anything else we've been able to do. Yeah, uh, you know, it's nice to say, well, why don't you guys just talk to each other and let us all get along? That sounds easy, but it's very hard to arrange. Yes, but uh, when it's 
sort of mutual, what the hell, you know, let, let's do it. <laughs> well, I, I remember hearing on the radio a Russian general in the 50s, or was talking about in the 50s, he, he said that the uh, generals assassinated Stalin, 53. And the reason was simple. We'd had a terrible war. The Russians lost 20 million people in the war, wartime period. And so the Russian people, if Stalin wanted to go on, get back at Hitler and, you know, all the rest of that stuff. But uh, the general said there weren't any men in Russia. That's why the women were sweeping the streets. Mm -hmm. That was a big fuss in the United States in the Cold War. Those Russians don't know what they're doing. Look, they got to use women to do all the dirty jobs. Well, there weren't any men. <laughs> They'd all well, been killed. <laughs> yeah. You know, there were a million died in the siege of Leningrad. Yeah. That's brutal. Uh-huh. <clears throat> See, I, because my aunts, my grandparents were all Russian, so I have a certain feeling for this kind of thing that, uh, you know, pride. And also, I didn't like what I saw that uh, a lot of Americans were looking down at those stupid peasant Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and uh, General Groves, who headed the Manhattan Project, was asked... Leslie Groves, yeah. In 48... No, in, yeah, in 48, how long would it be before the Russians had an A-bomb? And he hemmed and hawed, and they didn't have the industrial capacity, and they had been destroyed by the war and all this kind of thing. It would probably take at least eight years. Took a little over a year. Yeah. And caught us with our pants down. Because those stupid peasants can't do anything. Also, it was too... Well, also, they had people running around the Manhattan Project. Well, that helped, certainly. <laughs> uh, but it also was true that we thought that the Russians don't have any delivery system. Mm. They don't have any long-range bombers. Well, they had one of our B-29s, and they duped it. Yeah. <laughs> and so... But the United States didn't even have a... a big radar system because we don't need it because uh, those dumb Russians don't have a way of attacking us. It was kind of the attitude. I resented that. Uh, yeah. Just on general principles. Uh -huh. So, <clears throat> but it also illustrated when the leadership doesn't know what's going on, they can make bad mistakes. And the, war, the world spent a lot of money on that detente, so-called. I mean, and Today, one of the things that bothers me is that the military budget of the world is a, a trillion dollars this year. A trillion dollars. That was more than that. But. Well, maybe it's one point two trillion. Well, it doesn't it, matter. It dwarfs everything else. It, 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 you have to say, and and which a planet on which there are starving people in different places, not just one place. Mm -hmm. uh, th does it make sense to spend a trillion dollars on things military? I don't think so. So I keep telling people, my assessment, Earth is a planet, a primitive society with, whose major activity is tribal warfare. It's like little kids. My father's stronger than your father kind of thing. It went away for a... So I think they dumped all the bad boys and girls on, on Earth, and that's why we're so nasty to each other. You know? <laughs> it, it bothers me because yeah. I think I've got a great-grandson. 10, well, it'll be 11. Uh, and what's the world going to be like when he grows up? With all these guys spending money on more nuclear weapons, so and i got to join the club. For the first time and, in my life, I don't know. 
when it, I was in my twenties and teens and all that, I, you pretty much knew that things are generally going to go back left and right and for a while, and then it's just going to keep doing that. But now it seems like it's going wildly in different directions. Well, uh, you have an unpredictable man like uh, President Trump up there. You know, who knows what he's going to say? Uh, I, I don't know, but I am concerned about the state of the planet. Because I do have kids and a great grandson and uh, a grandson, and uh, we should be able to do a better job than we are. We on this planet and put technology in the service of mankind and instead of the service of killing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where the effort goes. Yeah. If it so bleeds, it leads. You know. Yeah. So you. you- to, to you, that working on the nuclear rockets was a peaceful use of, of nuclear power? Oh, no question. Uh, nuclear airplanes was exciting. Yeah, it was going to be for military purposes because who else would pay the bill? But uh, uh, it was an exciting challenge. And we did operate jet engines on nuclear power. What was the exhaust like? Was it radioactive? How was it shielded? Well, you're trying to protect the pilot. The engines are back here and the pilot's up here. So So you have shadow shielding between the two. And and what did you use? You can't use lead. You can't use that in a plane. Well, lead is uh, not very effective. It's not very dense, and it has a very low melting point. That's true. So I ran experiments with different shielding materials, uh, tungsten alloys. Mm Mm-hmm. And for neutrons, we had beryllium, beryllium oxide, lithium hydride, things I'd never heard of before I got into business. We had some great experiments down in Texas at uh, Convair Fort Worth at a test facility. And I was down there for three weeks running experiments and then for five weeks. And I was very pleased. Uh, I made a challenge. I was the GE representative down there. Uh, I was younger than all the Convair people started young and I, I made an arrangement which some guys raised an eyebrow at but the boss said it was okay that uh, for every test configuration over one per shift they were running three shifts so uh, I'd give them a case of beer <laughs> well the guys didn't see each other because of three shifts you yeah know, you know so <clears throat> And I talked to management when they came down, and they they approved, and they said, "Stan, if, if the company won't pay it, it'll, it'll come out of our budget." Yeah. And so, um, last thing I did when I left after the first series of experiments was uh, wrote them a check for sixteen cases of beer, <laughs> and they had a party. Yeah. It was good for the relationships between the company because they had nothing going in the program. Yeah. They were just a facility that was running experiments for me, for for us. So I found incentives work. You give guys some reason, and they set up a scoreboard. Our Even shift, if it's a stupid reason. <laughs> it justifies yeah. what, what you're doing. No, it turns it into a game. Yeah. And uh, so I got a kick out of that. And, it was, and I only went down there. My boss asked, Stan, could you go down and, you know, represent our interest down here for three weeks and then another five weeks. And I said, well, I will. You, Clark, remember his name. Um, if you'll 
introduce me to the people as your representative. So you come with me. I'm the youngest guy around, and yeah. so I want them to know that I have your backing. He was right. older than I was. Exactly. So he did that, and we got along fine. Uh-huh. Uh, me and I, I, here I am, giving instructions, and I'm younger than all the, the convert people. <laughs> yeah, but well, you have to get, have the guy come out there. So, well, I mean, somebody, and you have to get the imprimatur of of, uh, of an yeah. official. Yeah, and they did, and that worked, and we got great series of experiments done, and I was very pleased. I gave papers at meetings of the American Nuclear Society and stuff like that. Um, so it was fun in industry. But then you don't expect someone to cancel programs. Yeah. Look, on the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Program in 1958, we spent $100 million. That's a lot of dough back then. Yeah. And uh, when it came time to fish or cut bait, they cut bait. We successfully operated, people don't realize, jet engines on nuclear power. Our, we had an air-cooled system. Pratt Whitney had a... Uh, liquid sodium cooled system Uh-oh. <laughs> and the idea is air comes in the compressor compresses it and pushes it through the reactor goes in cold comes out hot mm-hmm. and our temperatures are only 1600 1800 degrees fahrenheit but uh, yeah well, the system can stand up to that oh yeah the systems can stand that and it would give you greater range for your airplane mm-hmm Plus fuel. Uh, so uh, th- those were challenging programs, and I enjoyed them. Yeah. And uh, but I spent 14 years in industry, and I thought, uh, naive as I guess I was, I thought I was laid off on the nuclear rocket program because they were closing it down. Yeah. So I had to get a job. So I check around and did an interview with McDonnell Douglas. Uh, astronautics in Santa Monica and uh, got a great offer. My job would be to figure out how flying saucers work. With that was your job description? Yeah. Physicist. Yeah. And I was really looking forward to it because that was an area that particularly I was intrigued with. And I'm driving across the country to take up my new job and I hear on the radio that the manned orbiting laboratory program which was, was part of was canceled. I walk in and they say, you realize we just laid off 5,000 people. I said, yes. They kept me for three months. But that convinced me I've got a family to feed. I've got to look after them. Yeah. And I started, they said I could do whatever I wanted for the three months. They were sort of apologetic. The people furniture was in the truck. Yeah, people did that back then. Yeah. And uh, I knew I had to look after my own, so I started getting on the phone 6 o'clock in the morning because of the time difference, calling colleges back east. And, I, you know, I do a mailing to a 1,000 colleges, get six or eight bookings, and then call the, I'm going to be in your neighborhood on these dates, so I can give you a special piggyback rate. So I filled my schedule. With lectures? Lectures. Yeah. Yeah. All over the place. I've spoken in all 50 states, 10 provinces, and 19 other countries. Uh-huh. There's interest everywhere. So that's when that, that was the genesis of you going out and just doing these lectures. Yeah, I mean, I'd been lecturing up to that point, a few hither. Okay, what year was that? Well, 
My first lecture was in 67. Uh -huh. This business uh, was uh, like 69. We had our successful test. The program was canceled. Now i got to do something. So I'm I did still, it. I'm just still intrigued that Douglas had a program to try and back engineer flying saucers. Well, they... Was it Douglas, you said? McDonald Douglas. Douglas. Yeah, McDonald Douglas. worked there for a while. Where? In uh, Santa Monica? No, um, Newport Beach in the 60s. Yeah. Oh, okay. Same was it Aerojet company. before that, actually? Yeah, I know about Aerojet. I was yeah. there for three years. In, uh, in Pasadena, and he was testing rocket oh. engines there. He was doing... Um, yeah, I was... I uh, worked tools. at... at um, oh, what's the name of the little town over there, east of uh, San Francisco? Aerojet General Nucleonics and... Palo Alto? Uh, no, it was on the other side of the bay. Can't think of the name of it. That's how long ago it was. Out in the middle of the walnut orchards, Walnut Creek, south oh, of okay. Walnut Creek. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I worked at very exciting programs. And you know, the funny thing was, get first job out of there was a, a new company. Two guys, Mainhart and Beal. Hadn't thought about them in years. It started this company out in the walnut orchard. And I thought, oh, that's great. I'd just gotten out of highly uh, industrialized General Electric. You know, seven guys between you and the president and things like that. Yeah. And here we got these two young guys, and I was really looking forward to it. And they got fired four months after I started there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, you have no control. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. So I spent my 14 years in industry, and I'd rather be my own boss. And I've been my own boss ever since, from 1970 on. I still didn't understand why the um, McDonnell Douglas hired you. What was the? What would they? What did they exactly hire you for? What was their reason for hiring you? What did they say your job description was? To figure out um, flying saucers work. <laughs> what a magnificent propulsion system to have available. Yes. And I had some notions about magneto-aerodynamics. And I'd done a lot of looking around, and, and it was a challenge. And my uh, modus operandi is based on the notion that technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. You've got to change how you do things. Yeah, there's got to be quantum leaps. Yeah, you don't, it's not a straight line. It just gets better and better. No, you've got to change how you do things. I mean, a, a fancy computer is not a better slide rule, entirely different technology. So it was exciting. You know, and I traveled quite a bit, ran experiments at facilities that got, <laughs> that got disappeared. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the country was, because of the Cold War, you could get money for all kinds of systems that offered the possibility of leapfrogging the Russians. Yeah. You know, well, this will be a nuclear airplane that will have a greater range, for example, than a conventional yeah, they, they could stay in the air. Yeah, thousands those, of hours. Whatever those uh, hold safe points over there yeah. forever. Yeah, thousands of hours, and you replace the crew, you know, not the engine. Yeah. So it, it, I, I worked on a study of fusion propulsion way back in 1962. Oh. And I, that was important to me because I realized, which most people don't seem to still, 
that nuclear fusion is what powers the universe. I mean, all the stars get their energy from nuclear fusion. We didn't know that until 1938. Mm-hmm. We thought it was, you know, a mass, the sun is a mass of burning gas. Yes. Well, sorry, it isn't. There's a little fusion process involved. Uh, but the thing about fusion, not only can you use it to make H-bonds, or you can use it to make a propulsion system that will get you to someplace else, other solar systems. Because you, yeah, because the amount of fuel you have to carry is... No. <laughs> no. So uh, fusion was exciting. And I still talk about fusion because one of the things I think that attracts us, well, it's wrong choice of words there, really, that makes us of interest to the aliens is the fact that we do have H-bombs. And as soon as they realize you're controlling fusion for bombs, if nothing else, soon you'll be able to use it for propulsion systems. And that means you can bother the others in the neighborhood. And that means we get a, we got to watch out for you. Because we have a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. That That's the way we are. As far as I can tell, everywhere I look, you know. So... <laughs> I can see where aliens want to come here to keep us from going out there and taking our brand of friendship, hostility. (laughs) Well, a trillion dollars on things military on one stinking planet is Mm -hmm. kind of a big gob of the goodies of the planet going into that. Yeah. So I'm a a physicist philosopher, if you will. But I I care. Uh, And I think one of the problems on the planet is we don't do enough of using our technological expertise for the benefit of mankind as opposed to threatening other societies. Mm. It goes into the military. You know, my bombs are bigger than your bombs kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm very pleased that we haven't had a nuclear war. I think most people are. <laughs> well, uh, I'm I pleased because I'm a little surprised. To, yeah, more surprised than, <laughs> than anything Because else. I know that there are bad guys around who are quite willing to grab a bomb and, you know, let's obliterate them before they obliterate us. Yeah. Even if they weren't planning on obliterating us. So, you know, you could call me a pacifist, if you will, and yet I've worked on military objectives. There are many people that worked in the military and on military programs that are quite pacifist, especially now. You appreciate what war can do. Who was the most, you know, the most famous one probably everybody knows about was Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah, he certainly wasn't a warm He was horrified. <laughs> yeah. But he, he had a job to do for the benefit of mankind. And for people who hate things nuclear, the invasion of Japan would have cost a million lives. People, some have estimated two million, as opposed to dropping two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we killed more in Dresden. My yeah, that, there's, a, there's a back and forth about that. My father is very against. He's, he's, we've had discussions about whether the bomb should be dropped, and he, was, he says he was against it still. Look, you never know what would have happened if we hadn't. Yeah. On the other hand, we do know that if we had tried to invade Japan, it would have been extremely costly. They fought for those little islands in the Pacific. Right. They didn't say, uh-oh, the enemy's coming. Give up our guns, guys. Let's go home. No, no. They were getting ready to mobilize the population. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think dropping the bombs was the right thing to do at that time, those places. 
I think he was more, he was of the, the school of demonstrate first what's going to happen if you don't. Well, if you say we're going to hold a demonstration. They only had, they only had enough for, for two bombs. Well, also, let's put our American prisoners of war where they're going to drop this bomb. You guys want to. Oh, yeah. That was always a threat. They yeah. had prisoners. Yes. That could be moved. Yeah. yeah. So I that think was, there were even some in those cities, but not very many. No, but you could. Because Hiroshima was, a, was a, a fluke because they, the, the primary target was uh, clouded over. Yeah. <laughs> Flukes of war. So I, you know, I've spent my time since getting out of the, uh, the, the nuclear industry in trying to educate the world about there are others out there. Some of them are coming here. We're part of a larger picture, and, uh, you know, let's get with it, because I believe, uh, you know, our, our view has changed about this. Uh, Frank Drake, SETI specialist, SETI standing for silly effort to investigate, of course. Uh, Frank said there might be as many as 6,000 places that uh, we could get signals from. We're going to listen yes. for radio signals. Yes, which, which was before all these exoplanets were discovered. But. Well, that's right. And, and now we look around and we say that there, son of a gun, there's planets all over the place. 1.6 planets per star. Yeah, it's, it's common. Yeah, well, within 100 light years, there's 10,000 stars, which means 16,000 planets. They don't all have life, I'm sure. Enough to, to make it interesting and to get us rid of the notion that we're uh, on top of the heap. We're trying to come lately. We tend to forget, you know, in 1650 or so, Bishop Usher said the world was created in uh, 4004 B.C. I think it was a Thursday afternoon. You know, <laughs> so that's 6,000 years ago. And we have to say now, well, he left out six zeros. It was four billion years ago. Mm -hmm. And there were places that were created before that. So our specialness has decreased with time, let's put it that way. Now, some people say, well, why don't the aliens talk to us? Why should they? Well, they can learn from us. Primitive society, major activity is tribal warfare. Keep the guys from bothering us would be the attitude, I would think. I mean, what have we got to say to aliens? Here's how you fight? Here's how you kill? Uh, that's not a big message. I don't think there's anything we could say because I think that whatever they're doing so completely, if there are any that are communicating with us, I have no idea, or coming here, um, we are so completely out of their realm of even understanding yes. us from them that it, there was, there's no comparison. There's nothing, there's that's no right. common ground. That's right. How did they get here? How would they get here, Stan? Well, that's Physically. something that's been concerned me right from the start. And you have people saying, oh, they've got to come from thousands of light years away and look how long members stand on the speed of light's the limit and you know all that sort of stuff and I say wait a minute let's put some facts on the table first yeah. of all at 1g acceleration the acceleration of gravity if you jump off a building or yes. <laughs> drop something uh, you get to the speed of light in less than a year and time slows down as you go fast so the closer you get to the speed of light the more time slows down so you go out, come back, marry your granddaughter's best friend, and you're home free because time has slowed down for you going there and back. But how do you do it? Well, uh, 
Two obvious suggestions, nuclear fission. I worked on successful nuclear fission rockets, much more effective than chemical rockets. And nuclear fusion would be even more exciting. I was involved in the study of fusion. What goes on in the sun, let's face it, what powers the universe, as far as we can tell. Uh, fusion, I worked on a study of fusion propulsion for deep space travel in 1962, Air Force sponsored $9 million to urge it. So my first suggestion is fusion. Fission for short trips, maybe, or take longer. Uh, whether there's something beyond that, I don't know. But who, what difference does it make as long as you got one solution? And remember, the propellant... There would have to be a completely spacefaring race, though, because by the time you got back, everybody you knew would be dead for thousands of years. no. 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 See, you can go nearby, at close to the speed of light, okay, it only takes a, a couple of years to get to 39 light years away. Zeta Reticuli, yeah. my, my favorite star system. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> well, the, the, the point is that with what we know today, without inventing unobtainium and unknowium and, you know, uh, rockets could be built that get us to high velocity. And also, one of the things we've learned in the space program, we can get to nearby stars if we want to. We want to spend the dough, we can go. What are we going to do? That's another question. You know, you're going to trade with them, you're going to colonize them, you're going to attack them. Uh, there are other problems, in other words. And it should be a planetary effort as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And we in this planet don't know how to work together very well. You know, it, it's shoot first, ask questions later. So... Uh, we, we don't know about a society in which there are different places and different planets who get along peacefully. That would be nice. No. I think somebody solved the problem because if they didn't, they'd be destroyed. But the other guy doing, you know, coming back at that. It's a crazy world we live in. So I'm an optimist. I think this problem is going to be solved. Have you seen the... Um I'm always like, oh, I don't know if aliens here. You know, it's, it's it's a silly idea. It's not the only one. The only the one of the things that give me hope was the um, the paper by I can't remember put off on a couple of people about inflation theory, basically about bending yeah. space so it doesn't. At that point, you don't have to travel it, but it well, takes incredible amounts of energy that you can't well, produce. Well, uh, uh, there are a couple of things. One, we've learned how to bypass that. The early calculation that Dr. Campbell in 1941 calculated the the uh, the weight you'd need to put a, a base on the moon. And it was uh, it was going to cost, what, umpteen billion dollars. And the weight would be enormous. And he made all the wrong assumptions about what the system would be like. Mm -hmm. He assumed 1G acceleration. That's silly. Uh, in other words... We've learned how to be smart about going to space. Staging rockets, for example. The first calculation about uh, putting a base on the moon assumed a single-stage rocket. Well, it costs you tremendous more weight uh, to use a single-stage rocket. Yeah. You, you use the first stage and you throw it away and you yeah, accelerate the second you're, you're, stage. And most of the fuel's burned up lifting the fuel out. That's right. Of the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. So uh, space engineers have learned to be smart. Yeah. And uh, the weights of all the systems that we talk about and we take for granted are much less than we're 
being predicted by people who didn't know enough to know that there are better ways of doing things. Yeah. Uh, what's the term? The, to use the gravity field of the planet to accelerate uh, yeah. rockets and stuff. They've done that before with probes. They they swing them around planets to get yeah. them push. Yeah, and it takes much less weight than if you don't have smart enough to do it that way. Yeah. yeah. Okay, one more question, and I, this was one I actually wrote down. Considering what's been going on recently, do you think science is changing to to meet the kind of evidence that we get for all the stuff we're looking at, all the UFO stuff? All, do you think it's changing to meet it on its own terms rather than the stalemate it's been at for Yeah, I think so. I, there's a wholly different attitude. Yeah. First, because we realize that there are umpteen zillion planets out there. Meaning there's nothing special about us. Mm -hmm. Meaning anybody who thinks we're the top dogs is crazy. There's too many places out there. Like I say, I'm not saying all those 16,000 planets within, within 100 light years have life on them, but let's say only 10%. That's <laughs> an enormous number. Mm -hmm. So <coughs> our sense of specialness has shrunk, or should shrink, yeah. As we realize that uh, there are loads of planets, there's loads of time. You know, it wasn't too long ago when the world was created in 4004 BC. More like 4 million. Uh, 4 billion. Billion, yeah. Like it. And so uh, everything has gone to make us less important than we like to think we are. <laughs> well, look, we thought the sun produced its energy by massive burning gas. That was in the 20s, 19. 1920s. Yeah. Uh, and now we know that's not true. But people could be a billion years ahead of us. And I got it on good authority that the place was populated before and we destroyed ourselves. It only takes a billion a year or so to <laughs> build back up. You know. <laughs> From nothing. So, yeah, uh, our... We have such a great notion of how important we are, how talented we are, and what we realize is how nasty we are when, when you boil it down, you know? Yeah. So I, I'm still an optimist because I think if somebody's coming here, they solve some of these problems. And they're not coming here and destroying us willy-nilly. Let's get rid of these pests, you know? Uh, so I am an optimist that uh, there are smart guys out there. It's not that I like aliens as such, but that I realize that they have learned how to live at peace with their own. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an extraordinarily important lesson to learn. We yeah. haven't learned it very well ourselves. <laughs> so I'm an optimist. My, I think my great-grandsons will wind up in a better world, he says, optimistically. 